And greetings, brethren, around the world. It's been great to be in this festival. I'm sure we've all had a wonderful feast. I'm sure God is with us. God is using us to help prepare for the way of the coming kingdom of God. We know that. We're grateful for that. We've been here to picture that time. And now, brethren, after the regular feast and the beginning of this great holy day, this last great day, we're now going back home. And we're going to be surrounded once again, of course, by the world, by worldly people, by television, the Internet, ringing phones, all the activities that distract us from the things we've learned here. Our focus on the coming government of God and Christ ruling this earth and our opportunity to help Him and then interact with Him and with God throughout all eternity. We must let nothing distract us from that. We really must not. And we've got to think about that and carry home with us the wonderful sermons, the fellowship, the spiritual strengthening we've had through this feast. This feast is for that very purpose. And I'm sure we've all drunk in a lot of great spiritual meat during this period of time, and we want to use this. Brethren, we're living in the most exciting time. Most of you know that. This is beginning to be the most exciting and the most traumatic time in the history of this earth. And it's going to get far more traumatic in the days and the years just ahead. We need to really grasp that fact and go all out for the purpose for which God has created us, the purpose for which God has blessed us, the purpose for which God has called us. Let's understand. Turn to Mark, if you would, in your New Testament, the Gospel of Mark, and beginning here in Mark chapter 13 and in verse 17, he says, Woe to those who are pregnant and to those with nursing babies in those days. He's describing the years just ahead of us, my friend, those days. And pray that your flight may not be in the winter. There's going to be a flight to a place of safety. We're supposed to pray that God will protect us and take us to that place of safety, as Jesus said back in Matthew 24 and in Luke 21 and elsewhere. We're to ask God for His protection, His guidance. Watch and pray that you may be able to count it worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. There is an escape. And those in the true church of God, as we read in Revelation 3 and Revelation 12, are going to be granted that opportunity. So let's appreciate that. We've got to go all out. We've got to understand that this is real. Pray that your flight will not be in the winter and that God will protect you and guide you and help you to be worthy to be taken to that place of safety and be in the very kingdom of God. For in those days there will be tribulation. The years just ahead of us, brethren, things are going to shake us and shake the world around us as it has never been shaken. There will be tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of creation which God created until this time, no nor ever shall be. That's what Jesus Christ said, and that is beginning to happen. Our whole world is changing. We're having a whole new system of government apparently come in from different types of politicians and situations we've never faced before, even here in the United States. And we need to realize that fact. Things are changing, and which focuses our mind. It should focus our mind on how much we need God's kingdom, brethren, we need to ask God to guide this coming election. We need to ask God to guide those in authority in the nations all around the world. And we need to ask God to please send Jesus quickly to deliver us from this. 
and to help us be worthy of his blessing, his protection, and of becoming full members of his family in God's time. Yes, this is going to be a time, and unless those days had been shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake whom he chose, he has shortened the days. Already God has planned to cut short what could have been a seven-year tribulation and make it a a three-and-a-half-year tribulation. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs, Notice that. What's coming ahead of us in the years ahead? False Christs, even people pretending to be Christ, and false prophets, all kinds of false prophets, will arise and show signs and wonders. It won't be just God's true ministers. God's true ministers will work the kind of sign Jesus did, but they'll have shining crosses and apparitions of the Virgin Mary and all kinds of other signs like that coming down the pike. You know that. Think about it. Get ready for it ahead of time. False Christ will show wonders and signs to deceive, if possible, even the very elect. But take heed, Jesus said, I have told you all things beforehand. Christ has warned us if we really study his word. We know what's ahead, but we need to understand it even more fully, brethren, because these things are more real than many of us have realized. We get our minds off the reality of this. And God has brought us together here in this place to learn to understand His will, His law, His way of life, so we can be prepared for the things that are coming, and so we can be prepared to be those kings and priests in the coming government of God, soon to be set up to bring genuine peace and joy, real prosperity, lasting prosperity to this earth, and a kind of inward peace that has never been experienced by the world as a whole. We have that opportunity, so we really want to understand So, if we're going to do these things and be ready for these things, what should we be doing? What should you and I be doing most of all as we think about going back home? I want to give you this message as you think about going back home right now. Think about it. Pray about it. Focus on it. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18. God says here, where there is no vision, the people perish. Most of you know that. Very important verse. Where there is no vision, the people perish, but happy is he who keeps the law. The law of God helps us understand how to live. It focuses our mind that we're to worship the true God above all else and have no other gods before that God. All these things are involved in God's law. But if you don't have that vision, if you don't have the mind of God in full, you perish. You cease to exist. Most of us want to live forever. We want to fulfill the purpose for which God made us. But brethren, we've got to keep that vision that God has given us and enlarge that vision and understand it even more. We need spiritual vision. We need to focus our minds on God's supreme purpose more than we have done before. Nothing must be allowed to distract us from this. We've got to develop spiritual vision. I remember so well as I grew up, and I've talked about this in some sermons in the past. I had about 25 friends. One of them we call Hoppy. He was a blind boy, born blind because his father, the story was, had free sex. Free sex. He had consorted with some prostitute and got venereal disease. And the reward for his so-called free sex was his son being born blind because this man got gonorrhea or syphilis. 
one of the venereal diseases that cause often their offspring to be born blind. It's not free. It's not free. Sin is never free. You pay a terrible price for sin. And we've all got to understand that and focus on that, too, as we go back home. So Hoppy had be taken and kind of he'd hopped along and we called him Hoppy. He'd take our arm or we'd take his arm and help him around. He was very intelligent, though. He went to the St. Louis School for the Blind, came back, learned to read Braille real well, of course, there. And the teacher would give him his tests up to one side from the rest of us, quietly, verbally. And he got all A's. He was extremely intelligent, extremely intelligent. And he had a sense of knowing. He had a sense of vision, even though he couldn't see. And by listening carefully to the nuances of the way things were said, the articulation, the uh, the way people expressed themselves, he was able to understand the attitude. He was able to understand the hurt. He was understand the way people were thinking many times better often than many of us who could see. He became a very successful psychoanalyst. He would ask people to describe their problems. He couldn't see them, but he was able to have vision in that way beyond others because he had that sense of that sixth sense that he developed and a very intelligent mind to go along with it. I've never forgotten that. Never forgotten that experience with Hoppy. You and I need far more than that. We need spiritual vision. We need that sensitivity to the will of God and to perceive what God really wants and give ourselves to that, brethren, more than we have done. A lot of us have let down a lot in God's church just flowed along. Any little upset, any little hurt feeling just takes them right out of God's church and frankly out of God's kingdom if they don't repent in many, many cases. You need to understand that. It's so easy to turn aside, so easy to get out of sync with God and forget the big picture and the spiritual vision that you and I need and we need it so much. So I hope all of us can focus on that as we leave this festival. We've got to focus on that and let nothing turn us aside. Back in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, if you would turn there with me, I want to go a little deeper into this. 2 Corinthians in your New Testament, turn with me to chapter 4 and beginning in verse 16. Paul has been talking about the trials that we all go through. And boy, we do go through trials. And we're going to go through a lot more before it's all over. You must not give up. You've got to have that spiritual vision and see that big picture and have the shining vision of the kingdom of God, the power of God, Christ coming back. You're becoming a king or priest under Jesus Christ in a real government. Are you responding to that government even now? Is Christ real to you even now? Is God real to you even now? Think about it. You need that spiritual vision. Therefore, we do not lose heart, Paul said, in spite of all these trials. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. We've got to renew that inward man. For our light affliction, any trial we have, brethren, is very light compared to what people are suffering in most cases all over the world today. Suffering, being brutally raped and tortured. Most of us in the church here in our Western nations don't have to go through that. But we just get our feelings hurt or we let down or we go after the things of the world. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. 
we are going to be glorified in the very family of the great God if we hang on, if we keep that spiritual vision right in front of us all the time, all the time, while we do not look. Where's our vision? Where's our, where are our eyes focused? While we do not look at the things which are seen, we don't focus on those things, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We've got to keep our vision focused on those things that really matter. And that's very hard to do. But you've just had a great big dose of spiritual meat here at the festival. Don't lose that vision. Go back home determined to review your notes. Think about it. Pray about it. And drink in of God's Word and His mind always and not lose that spiritual vision. That's, of course, the important thing. And get to know and be fully acquainted with the invisible God. Back in John chapter 17, if you turn there, brethren, John chapter 17 is Jesus' final prayer, the real Lord's Prayer. I'm just going to read a couple of verses here in this case. But John 17, verse 1, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you also glorify. And of course, we're going to have that same thing happen to us, brethren, if we make it, if we can keep our spiritual vision as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life. Think about this. Meditate on this, brethren. I didn't used to meditate on this verse, but later I've come to understand how important it is, how key it is. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We must come to know the invisible God. We can't see him, but by vision, by sight, spiritual vision, we know he's there. And we've proved him to ourselves in many, many ways, hopefully all of us. And if we haven't, we better do that. We really better do that with all our being. We need that spiritual vision to know the only true God, and that is eternal life. Our contact with God, our walking with God, talking with God, communing with God, fellowshipping as we pray, as we study, as we go through each day with our hand in God's hand and realizing it's that way, fellowshipping with God and Christ and walking with them day by day and hour by hour, we come to know them. We see them intervening. We see what they're doing in world affairs. We see what they're doing in the work. We see what they're doing in our lives. And we know they're there. And we walk with God hour by hour and minute by minute. God becomes real. This is eternal life. That close contact with God, that walking with God, that fellowship with the Father and with Christ, that is eternal life. That interaction, that sharing, that walking with God is the beginning of eternal life. It takes us right over into a new dimension of existence in the very family of God because we are begotten sons walking with God, talking with God, communing with God even now. We've got to really understand that and do that, brethren. That's very deep. Please learn that. Learn that as a way of life. So how can we really do this? Well, I want to give you certain keys here, special keys that may not have been put in just this way before. Turn back to John chapter 6. 
turn back to John chapter 6. Now, I've explained this many times, and I'll keep on, because this is so deep and it's profound, we can keep learning from this. John chapter 6, and beginning here in verse 53, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. That sounds like cannibalism. If you just take it at face value, you know that. If you think about it, he's speaking of something very deep. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. That doesn't mean you're already immortal because he says that I will raise him up at the last day, indicating that he would die. Most people will die. So what is it? You eat and drink of Christ, you feed on Christ, and that is eternal life. That is Christ living in you. That is God living in you through the Holy Spirit. Again, going back to John 17, to know God, to commune with God, to walk with God, talk with God, fellowship with God, that process is eternal life. And it takes you right over into the next dimension. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. If we yield to God, we yield to Christ so that Christ literally comes inside of us and we have his spiritual flesh and blood, we drink in of him, we have him living within us, that is eternal life. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me, who feeds on Christ, will live because of me. Yes, you will live forever. He said down in verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. You and I get involved. I do. I have the work of God to minister and these ministers to hire and this money we've got to spend on television and get these articles done and deadlines for the coworker letters and all these problems in the churches I hear about and situations in the office to help things do better and so forth. All these things can take our time plus my own family and the things I need to do at home and with my uh, six children and nine grandchildren and two great-grandchildren, all those things come to think and pray about. It's often physical things. They're not just spiritual. A hundred things, a thousand things to distract us. But we've got to walk and talk with Christ and feed on Christ as our primary focus in this physical life. It ain't easy, as we say. It's something we've got to strive to do. But with all of our heart, we've got to do this. For Jesus said, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. The words in this book, when you really understand the Bible, when you feed upon it, when through God's Spirit you're able to understand the New Testament in connection with the Old as it is magnified and put it all together, you are having eternal life. You're having the very essence of God come into you. The mind of God, the character of God, the vision of God comes into you through this book in a profound way. This is Christ in print. Jesus came in the flesh 1,900 years ago, but now this is the Word. He was the Word. This is the Word in print. 
And we need to really understand that and grasp that perhaps more than many of us do. That's a very important thing because that is the thing that can help us have eternal life. It can build faith for us too. We often think, well, God is unreal. Why can't we have faith? I've quoted and I want to read it this time so you get the full essence of it. A wonderful quotation in Haley's Pocket Bible Handbook here from Dwight L. Moody, this famous evangelist. He said, Dwight L. Moody, I prayed for faith and thought that someday faith would come down and strike me like lightning. But faith did not seem to come. One day I read in the 10th chapter of Romans, quote, and we have all read this, and I'll read this to you just as he quotes it. Now faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. This Word, the Bible, you drink into this and you grow in faith. He prayed for faith, but as he began to study the Bible, he found his faith greatly increased. You drank into the mind of God. You see how God guided Abraham in the trials he went through. And then Isaac. And then how God called Jacob. And yet Jacob ran the other way for a while. Made all these mistakes. And yet as he came back, finally after all those years with his two wives and his two concubines and all these children. And uh, the people met him and said, your brother Esau is coming towards you to meet you. And he has 400 men with him. He had cheated Esau out of the blessing. And Jacob knew that in a sense. And God allowed that, of course, to be done in that way. But he was scared to death. He knew Esau could be a very treacherous, a very vicious man. And he was scared. And he said, oh, God, I'm not worth the least of your blessings and your mercies, but have mercy on me. And in that situation at that time, Jacob, as the story goes on, wrestled with God. And he went through a kind of an Old Testament conversion process. At that time, he gave his life to God. He said, I'm not worth anything. You take my life. You take my life. You use me, guide me, and I will serve you. He said in a physical sense, but that was sort of a conversion back here for our father Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. Each of you needs to go through that kind of a process, if you haven't done so, to give your life utterly to God, to realize you're nothing apart from God. Your money is worth nothing. Your house is worth nothing. Anything you have is worth nothing because it all can end and you'll be lowered into a pit, into the grave, and your body will rot and the worms will dissolve it. Take care of it. It's gone. All your hopes and dreams are gone except for God and God's purpose and God's spirit in your life and Christ living in you, which is the presence and the beginning of eternal life. Please understand, brethren. So he then began to read the Bible. I had closed the Bible and prayed for faith. I now opened my Bible and began to study and faith has been growing ever since. This is one way to build faith. You need to pray for faith, of course very much, but you need to study and drink into this book in a profound way and drink in of Christ and feed on Christ, as he says here in verse 57, as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. Brethren, as we go back home, we must feed on Christ. I think that many of us get distracted. Many of you get distracted. And maybe you'll skip entire days or several days at a time without really studying the Bible. Maybe you don't even look at it for three, five, ten days. 
Maybe you just read one chapter real quick for encouragement or something, and that's it. Well, my Methodist grandmother used to do that. My Protestant relatives, Catholics, do that. Read a little bit of the Bible, a little verse or two or one chapter for inspiration. We are the people of God. The living church of God is the instrument that Christ is now using to help prepare the way for the coming kingdom of God. We have that opportunity. We have this privilege. We need to be excited about it. But to be those men and women of God that God can use to perform great exploits, to do the work, to have an impact on this world, we've got to feed on this book beyond what we've been doing, brethren. Really drink in of it. Feed on it and have the mind of God and learn to pray to God with all our hearts. As I've said, Mr. Armstrong used to say, and I've heard him say it a number of times, he felt after all the years in the ministry and the experience of dealing with thousands of brethren, he said, I think one of the biggest problems with our brethren in their prayers is the fact they do not put their hearts in their prayers. And he would often quote Hosea 7, verse 14, where it says, they cried to me, or they did not cry to me with their heart. And the King James says, or the Moffat translation says, they did not put their hearts in their prayers, as he makes it more clear in the Moffat translation. This is a very important key. Do you cry out to God with your being, or as you pray, do you just have certain words you sort of say over and over, and you don't really make it heartfelt, and you don't literally sometimes yell when you're in a private place? You don't, in a sense, murmur with all your being, and your body shakes, and you're crying out to your Creator, Father, help me, fashion me, mold me, use me. Please forgive me for my rottenness, my vanity, my sins. Clean me up and scrub me out. Do you pray that way to God? Brethren, you'd better, please, for your sake, for your sake of eternal life, you'd better learn to pray that way. Learn to study the Bible in a heartfelt way. Learn to meditate then as you study and drink in of God's Word. So you're thinking about these words. You're thinking about God's purpose. You're thinking about God's work and how can we reach China? How can we reach India? How can we reach Central and South America better? How can we reach Europe and Eastern Europe better? How can we reach the whole world? What impact can you have? How can your personal life help others more? How are you growing under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ? Think about those things. Meditate about those things continually. For you are thinking of the things of God, and that is your focus. That is your vision. Then you have spiritual vision. Without vision, the people perish. And without that vision, my friends, you will perish. Please don't let that happen. You've got to keep that as your vision always. So let's understand and let's go all out to walk with God and walk with Christ in that way. Turn to Colossians chapter 3, if you would. This is uh, the third chapter of the book of Colossians and your New Testament, Colossians chapter 3. One of my favorite uh, sections here of the Bible because it is, I think, so inspiring and so meaningful. Colossians 3, verse 1. If then, Paul writes, you were raised with Christ, if you've come up out of the baptismal uh, pool, so to speak, out of this watery grave... Seek those things which are above. Think about the things above, the kingdom of God, the glory of God, God's purpose. Seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Set your mind on that. That is your vision. 
your vision, thinking about those things, picturing Christ at God's right hand, picturing coming back as King of kings and Lord of lords, and the mountains and islands shaken out of their place, and a great trumpet sound, and Christ is coming, Christ is coming, with millions of angels perhaps, and changing this whole earth, and taking over the governments of Germany and France and Italy and Britain and America and Canada and Australia and New Zealand, South Africa, everywhere, taking over the governments of China and India, bringing a kind of peace and order to the world that it has never had before. Think about it. Pray about it. Ask God to help you to do your part in it. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Don't let those things take up your interest all the time. For you died. Your old self was supposed to be buried in the waters of baptism. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, if we're truly converted, we know that our life is not this is human life. Our ultimate life is Christ in us. So we've got to realize that when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You'll have magnificent glory. You'll be given a spirit body made full sons of God. And your face will shine like the sun. And you'll be able to rule over five or ten or cities or a whole nation under Jesus Christ with his help, with his guidance. And perhaps direction from King David or the other leaders under Christ working with that process, working with Christ's government and learning and growing even in that. And yet having a spirit body and a spirit mind so you do not make the mistakes you would make. But your heart has got to be absolutely right and focused on that or you won't be there in the first place. Think about it. That is your vision. So, brethren, we really need to saturate our minds with this book, the Bible. Saturate with it. Feed on Christ beyond what most of us have ever done. Think about it. Beyond what you perhaps have ever done then you'll get a deeper understanding and you won't wonder what about this and that all the time. You'll know because you will have studied. So saturate your mind and ask God for understanding. Ask God for wisdom. Ask God for faith. Ask God for love and outflowing concern to love Him, to worship Him, to adore Him, to serve Him, to give your life to Him and the love and outflowing concern you need for all human beings made in God's image, every man, woman, and child on this earth in the image of God. And ask him for humility. Often we learn certain things or part of God's church, then we get this vanity. We want what we want. And we lose the deep humility to surrender ourselves to God and to surrender ourselves to one another, to be humble members of the church of God, the body of Christ, rather than being self-willed and wanting to split off and go our own way and do this and that and simply being confusion among God's people. That's another key thing we certainly need to ask for, all of us. Remember the four main tools that I've often described of Christian living, Bible study, meditation, prayer, and fasting. And I've read to you many times out of Mr. Armstrong's autobiography how he used those tools. Remember how he said he would fast and do with nothing, and then during the fast, he would devote himself to three main things. He would study the Bible profoundly for about an hour. Then he would take a full hour that's what he said, and I've talked to him. I've heard Mr. Armstrong, Mrs. Armstrong describe it, too. That's, he said, that's what my husband would do. And I think I believe that. 
I don't think I believe it. I know that I believe that because I've seen him do it personally and think about it and to say it heartfeltly. That was his way of life when God began to call him especially. He just sought God with his whole being. That's why he could come with this whole panorama of the whole understanding of the Bible beyond any man in modern times because he did that. He really studied this book for an hour as he fasted. Then he would meditate on the Bible thinking, what does this mean? What's the implication of it? Remember when he was coming to the knowledge of the whole purpose of of human life, that God is reproducing himself? He turned it over and over in his mind. Well, many of your brethren don't remember that, but I do. Mr. Partian does. Others of us who saw that process, he would talk about it in church. And people would say, well, here he goes again on man becoming God. He turned it over and over in his mind. He focused on it. He grabbed onto it like a dog on a bone, so to speak. He wouldn't let it go until he really thoroughly understood it. So he would study the Bible. He would meditate on the Bible over and over for an hour. And then he would get on his knees and pray for about one hour as well. Bible study, meditation, and prayer while he was fasting. And as he said, he would get up and take a walk or stretch once in a while. But most of his time... Most of his time was devoted during a day of fasting to those three things. And fourthly, fasting. He was fasting, doing without food, humbling himself as he sought God. Do you do that? Do you set aside a time every now and then? Many of us try to fast about once a month. Do you? For you do nothing, in a sense, your main time at least, is consumed with Bible study, meditation, and prayer while you're fasting, humbling yourself, and seeking God and asking God to help you go deeper, to help you draw closer to Him in a profound way so you can fulfill the purpose of human existence. Think about it, brethren. Let those tools be tools that you use, that you really use, zealously, heartfeltly, as a way of life. So we've got to saturate our minds with the Bible and ask God to help us be like He is and fulfill His purpose that He's put in action in making us His sons. Think about this as we turn out back to 1 John, if you would. 1 John chapter 3, at the, near the end of your New Testament here. 1 John chapter 3, God says through this servant of His, the beloved disciple of Jesus, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. We're the very children of God. He's taken us as His sons, spiritually, sons and daughters, even now. And we're all going to be sons in a sense as we're made spirit beings, being neither male nor female, but with the male dominating that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. No, the world's not going to appreciate all that. Don't get discouraged. They didn't even know Christ. But you are God's children. God is fasting and molding you, and you want to appreciate that, cry out for that, yield to that, seek that. Beloved, now are we the children of God. We have Christ living in us. We have the very seed of God in us, so we're His children. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. We don't fully understand the glory and the power that we will have. But we know that when He is revealed, when Christ comes back, we shall be like Him. Christ's face shines like the sun. His voice is like the sound of many waters, like the massive waves coming over the rocks up in the big Sur country of Northern California. His voice is as like rolling thunder. 
crashing across the plains of Kansas or Oklahoma or Texas, as I've heard it so many times. Rolling thunder, the voice of God. That's the kind of voice you're going to have. That's the kind of power you're going to have. So we want to think about that. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Then we will be full sons of God. We can know Christ in a personal sense, talk to him, see him physically in that sense, and know him and fellowship with him. We shall see him as he is in full glory. And everyone who has this hope, that you can become a full son of God, that is your hope, that is your vision, then you have this hope. He purifies himself just as he is pure. You're not purifying yourself just because God's trying to catch you at something or you're afraid of dying on the lake of fire. You want to have that fear of God, yes. But the big thing is that love over even rides that. Perfect love casts out fear. You love God so much, he's real to you. You want to fulfill his purpose. You want to fulfill the purpose of your creator, the reason why he's given you life and breath, the reason why he's, he's blessed you the reason why he called you. You want to fulfill that purpose. You love him. And so you go all out for that, you see, and you can become like God is then in that way. You purify yourself just as he is pure. You want to develop the very character of God. The real character of God is saying no to that which is wrong. No to these vanities and these selfish wrong attitudes that come swarming into your mind. And yield to God and say, God, please live your life in me. Send Jesus to live within me. And yield to that and pray that way off and on all day long to walk with God in that way. Whoever commits sin commits lawlessness because sin is lawlessness. Or as the King James says, sin is the definition. Sin is the transgression of the law. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. In Christ there is no sin. Whoever abides in him, you see, doesn't have sin living within him. Whoever abides in him does not sin. And, of course, throughout this passage, brethren, some of the commentaries point out it's the present participle that's used, the present active tense, does not practice sin. Of course, you sin once in a while, as God says later, uh, and even earlier back here in John chapter 1, uh, just to show you what I mean by this, in John chapter 1 and verse 10, it says, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And it says in verse uh, uh, 8, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. No, we still have sin in our bodies and sin comes in from Satan, and if we allow it to be there, entertain it, we still make mistakes. But we don't walk that way. We don't practice sin. We don't regularly break the Sabbath. We don't regularly lust. We don't regularly hate as a way of life. We don't do that. Whoever practices sin has neither seen him nor known him. You see people in the world, and they mean well, uh, nice people often, but they practice sin. They regularly break God's law and then excuse themselves for breaking the Sabbath or lying is just a way of life. They just get used to exaggerating and lying as they go along. To them, it's like breathing in and breathing out. They're just used to stretching and exaggerating and lying. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices, and here it is in the Greek, in the New King James Version, I mean, actually put in there. He who practices righteousness, you see, practices it as a way of life, is righteous just as he is righteous. You reflect the very character of God because Christ is in you. 
He who sins, that is, he who practices sin, is of the devil. I said earlier, we all sin, but here he's talking about he who sins, who practices sin. He is of the devil. That doesn't mean he's demon-possessed, but he's under the influence of the devil, who is the God of this age. He's of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifest, that he might destroy the works of the devil, that he might help people overcome Satan through Christ living within us. Whoever has been born of God, and here the Greek word is certainly best translated, ganao, can be translated born or begotten. It obviously is begotten. Whoever has been begotten of God in this life, you see, begotten does not practice sin. For his seed, you see, the very nature of God, the Greek word, as some of you know, is literally sperm, sperma. His sperm, God's direct seed, is in us. He has begotten us. We come right out from God, just like my sons have come right out from me. They bear some of my characteristics, the way I look and the way I think to a certain degree. Every one of them, we come right out from God. So it says his seed uh, remains in him and this Christian, and he cannot practice sin because he has been begotten of God. He cannot practice sin, you see, because he has been begotten. The Holy Spirit is living in him. And the only way he could practice sin is to commit the unpardonable sin and turn away from God. And then verse 10 explains, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest, showing he's talking about us now, not when we're finally born of God in the resurrection, but in this, the children of God, you see, in this life, and the children of the devil in this life are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness, obviously in this life, is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. So we've got to really love one another and learn truly, genuinely, my brethren, to forgive one another and not carry grudges. Every human being is made in the image of God, has the potential to be son son or daughter of God, like God forever. We will share eternity with all these people. The vast majority will eventually be in God's kingdom. He's going to work with them. Those who are not called today, as you know, he's going to give them that magnificent opportunity that this day pictured and that you heard about this morning. In the great white throne judgment, they'll have a genuine chance to know God and to do His will. And when they do, the vast majority will make it and they'll be there. And they will be our brothers and sisters throughout all eternity. So we've got to really learn to forgive and get over it and not carry grudges and to love every human being in that sense. That doesn't mean we agree with everything they do. That doesn't mean we try to be like them or fellowship with them all the time, but to have that outflowing concern, hoping they'll wake up in their time, hoping they'll make it, hoping God will have mercy on them, and genuinely hoping that. That's what God wants. God is reproducing himself. He's putting his very spiritual sperm, his seed, inside you and me. Think about it. That is awesome. He's fashioning and molding us now that we can be fully like he is. And that is the ultimate purpose for which we've been born. As we feed on Christ, we become like God. We will then want to give. We'll want to help. We'll want to serve God with all our hearts and each other because Christ will be in us. We'll be involved in the work of God. We'll know that's the main thing Christ is doing today, getting his message out to the world. 
helping warn our peoples about what is just ahead. Wake up, America. The bridge is washed out down the road. Repent. Turn aside before it's too late. Turn away from sin and turn to God. We've got to warn America, Britain, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and our Israelite people particularly because the tribulation is coming directly on us and on all the world to some extent. So we've got to realize how our purpose is to think like God, to act like God, to be like God, to reflect Jesus Christ more in literally everything we think and say and do. We will then certainly want to to help and to serve the billions, billions, tens and hundreds and thousands of millions of human beings that we're going to be dealing with in a few years in tomorrow's world in the kingdom of God. As these people come streaming back from captivity in various lands and they're hurting, some of them will have faces blown partly off and, and their arm or leg will be missing. As I've said, I can never forget my first trip to Europe and how Dick Armstrong and I went to Germany and there even more than in France because the bombing was so horrible at the end of the Second World War. I saw more men and women where part of their face was missing, their ear was gone, one eye was out, their arm was off and so on than I've ever seen. The horrors of war is going to be so much worse in this time we read about in Mark 13 for there's never been a time like that nor ever shall be the time of the Great Tribulation. These people are going to come back. They're hurting. They're physically, mentally, and emotionally hurting. And you will have to reach out to them and say, It's okay. It's okay. I love you. We love you. We who are in God's kingdom, we spirit beings, we're here. We appear. You'll learn this. We're different. But we love you. We're, we genuinely want to serve you. And when the government comes then and says, that, Here, I'm from the government. I want to help you. <laughs> They'll come to believe it. They'll come to believe it because we in the kingdom of God will have that total outflowing concern. And we've got to have that today, my brethren. If you have that outflowing concern, you'll not just be concerned about yourself and your personal salvation. You'll want to help others in the church. You'll want to help others in the work. You'll want to have part of the work of God getting this message out all over this world with all your heart. You'll want that. You'll put your being into that. You'll dig down deep when we ask for tithes and offerings and so on. Not that we have to have that. God can use someone else. If you don't do your part, you know that. But your heart will be in it because you'll know that is what Christ is doing. That's his focus today. And that better be your focus to get the message out to the whole world. And to the degree you can personally to help others, to talk to them, to encourage them, to pray for them. And this type of thing. Your heart will be on giving and helping and serving and building that attitude within yourself then it can last for all eternity because your focus, your vision will be the mind of God, the purpose of God, the goal. Your vision is on the goal of that glory, that power, and that opportunity to serve, which will be given to you and will last for all eternity if you give your life to God, if you keep your focus on that great vision, on the supreme purpose of your Creator. So... Be sure you do that as these people come back, these hurting human beings at the beginning of the millennium, as they come back even in the great white throne judgment, they come up and they're scared and their last memory may be dying in the Holocaust as they were put in an oven and burned and they remember that. You're there to help them. You'll love them. You'll say, it's okay. 
We're going to help you, serve you, teach you the right way. Here is the way, walk ye in it, and begin to teach them the statutes of God as they're magnified, the way of God. So you'll have to study this book. You'll have to study the commandments, meditate on them like David did. You'll have to really study those statutes of God all the way through, you know, Exodus 21, 2, and 3, and back during the middle chapters, uh, uh, let's say Deuteronomy 12 through 28. Study those statutes of God. What do they mean? How can they apply spiritually today? They all apply spiritually, and many of them apply literally, of course, the vast majority even today, and see that. Have the mind of God in that way because you focus on this. Why is King David going to be the king over all Israel in a few years, my brethren? Because he said, oh, how loved by thy Lord is my meditation all the day. He had the experience of using the law of God as the undergirding of the whole government for 40 years over ancient Israel. What about these Protestant preachers? They don't do that. They say the law is done away. They're going to have to bitterly repent. Many of them are going to get scared to death as they see the Catholics taking over in Europe and gradually over here, and they're going to become Catholics. They don't understand the Bible. They just talk about sweet Jesus, and somehow they'll get scared because they don't really understand, and they know that. And they think, well, the Catholic does have, the Catholics have some kind of focus. They're against abortion and they're against, uh, um, homosexuality and certain key things. So they'll think, well, we better join them now. They don't understand. But you do understand if you have God's Spirit. You've got to grow in that understanding though and go deeper and deeper and have the mind of God because you drink in of this Word and feed upon it in a profound way more than most of you have ever done in your entire life. I ask you, I exhort you, in Jesus' name, go home and do that. Become the true people of God, the leaders for tomorrow's world. You're being trained for that here, now. Let's do it. So, brethren, let's understand all these things. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 33. Psalm chapter 33 now in your Old Testament. Here's David writing the man after God's own heart. And Psalm 33, of course, is a wonderful psalm. And I'm not going to read it all. I'd like to, but turn to verse 10. The eternal brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. Yes, they think the United Nations are going to solve this or that problem, or they think the European Union is going to solve this or that, or the coming beast power. No, they're not. God brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the eternal stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the ever-living one and the people whom he has chosen as his inheritance. Understand that. Have that as part of your vision to realize all this stuff is going on. You read about it on in the newspaper. You see it on television. They mean well, most of them, but they're blind. They don't know God and their plans will come to nothing. The eternal looks down from heaven, the great God of creation, the God who gives us life and breath. He sees the sons of men from the place of his habitation as he looks down on us. He has perfect vision. He sees throughout the universe. He sees our hearts. He knows even what we're thinking. He sees the sons of men. He looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. My brethren, God is fashioning and molding you if you're converted. He's teaching you lessons. He has put you through trials and tests. He rebukes and chastens you and me as he does every son he loves, not the ones he hates, but the ones he loves. 
He has to do that to wake us up, to help us realize we, we, we burn our hand when we touch a hot stove. It hurts. And we're taught to turn away from it as God teaches us lessons for all eternity. But we've got to understand that purpose of God. He wants us to be his sons. He wants us to have his total character so he can trust you and me to rule over five cities or ten or nations or even later other planets, Pluto and Neptune and all these other great planets, even unknown planets and, and, and you know whole universes out there they haven't even discovered yet. Of the increase of his kingdom, there shall be no end, the Bible tells us. Who knows our ultimate opportunities? But we know God is great, and nothing will stop the growth of his kingdom and of his government. You want to be part of that action. You want to fulfill the purpose of your creator. Have that vision, that goal always, not just day by day, brethren, but please, hour by hour and minute by minute to the degree you can. Yes, I forget it, get my mind on physical things from time to time. All of us do. But I hope I can even have more of that in the future. I hope all of you will. We've got to do that. We're the people of God. If God's going to use us powerfully, if God is going to lift this work, if God is going to give give us the gifts of His Holy Spirit, we've got to truly walk with God in a profound way more than we have ever done. And we've got to have that spiritual vision always in front of us in order to do that. Real vision, spiritual vision, as God works with us and he fashions our hearts individually, as it says here, as he makes us his full sons, members of the kingdom of God, the family of God throughout all eternity. Turn now to Hebrews chapter 2 in your New Testament. Hebrews chapter 2, brethren. And let's turn in Hebrews 2 and verse 5, if you would. Hebrews 2, and I want you to turn at this point to uh, verse 5. Paul is writing here, undoubtedly the Apostle Paul, and he says, For he, God, has not put the world to come. We call it tomorrow's world, the coming kingdom of God. He's not put that world of which we speak in subjection to angels. Angels were not created to be over the world. Man was made in God's image from the beginning. But one testified in a certain place saying, What is man that you're mindful of him? He's quoting or paraphrasing, as you know, Psalm 8. Or the son of man that you take care of him. Why does God focus on us little weak human beings down on this earth? You made him a little lower or a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. You see, God is the one who speaks of those things which are not as though they are. Back in Romans 4 and verse 17, God tells us that. So God has in his plan already crowned us with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. In God's plan, he's put the whole earth, in fact, the entire cosmos, the entire universe under the feet of men. But those men have to first become God. They have to become full sons of God and members of God's family. For in that he put all, everything, and the commentaries acknowledge that this word often does mean the entire universe. It it puzzles them as they try to explain this verse because they can't. They don't know God's purpose. For in that he put all in subjection under man, he left nothing that is not put under him. Nothing. Nothing in the entire universe that ultimately is not to be put under us, my brethren. 
That's why we have to go all out. That's why we've got to keep that spiritual vision, that magnificent focus for the future, the ultimate purpose of human existence. He put nothing or left nothing that is not put under man. But now we do not yet. Of course, we don't now. We do not yet see all things put under him. We're still human. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, or for a little while lower, for the suffering of death. He had to go through death to pay for our sins, and we want to appreciate that forever and ever and never lose sight of what Jesus Christ did. He will always be our elder brother, our living head, our high priest at the Father's right hand. He will always be over us, and we want to worship Him and adore Him as we do God the Father. He was made a little lower than uh, for the suffering of death, of course, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for every man. So he's taste death for all of us. For it was fitting for him, Jesus Christ, for whom are all things. You see, he was, of course, uh, uh, made to do this. For whom are all things. He created everything for his own purpose and for God's purpose. And by whom are all things. God did the creating by Jesus Christ and bringing many sons not a few, many, ultimately billions, probably, billions of sons of God to glory to make the author of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Christ had to go through sufferings, my brethren, and you and I have to go through sufferings. He has to knock the rough edges off of me. He has to work with me and fashion me and mold me and knock me down and drive me to my knees again and again. And he has to do that with you. Understand that. He's not against you. It's not too hard. You can make it. You will make it with God's help. But understand that purpose. Keep that spiritual vision. And then you won't give up when these trials come. Keep that vision, that great focus of the ultimate purpose for which God has created you and called you and blessed you. So he's bringing many sons to glory. And he had to go through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified, we are being fashioned and molded and work made like God, are all of one, or all made in God's image, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Once we have God's Spirit within us, then we are begotten sons of God, and we are brethren, brothers of Jesus Christ, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing praise to you. Yes, we're all brethren, brothers of Jesus Christ, and we will be his brothers and full sons of God throughout all eternity if we can keep that focus, if we can keep that great vision that God wants us to have. Now let's turn, if you would, to chapter 12, chapter 12 here of Hebrews. And I'd like to read it all, but again, I don't want to take time to read every verse, although I'd like to. But Hebrews 12 has been describing how God rebukes and chastens every son he loves and how he works with us to teach us lessons, to fashion and mold us. And so he says in verse 11, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. No one we get spanked by God. It hurts. It hurts. Well, God, why does this have to come on me? And why does this last so long? And so on. It doesn't seem joyful for the present, but grievous. 
Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it or exercised by it, as some translations have it, or exercised by being dealt with by God, by being shaken, by being spanked, by being awakened to how weak we are and how we've been wrong and this or that. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Yes, cry out to God, lift up your hands and get on your knees and make straight paths for your feet so that the lame may not be dislocated, but rather healed. Pursue peace with all men. Love every human being. Try to be good to them, even though they're not good to you. And holiness, holiness to be like God, to fulfill the ultimate purpose. That is your goal, to be full sons of God, to interact with the Father and with Christ throughout all eternity. Pursue holiness, he says, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking diligently, not half-heartedly, making it a big issue in your life, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness bringing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Quite often we hear about even one of our elders or one of our members getting upset. They say, well, I didn't agree with the way this minister handled this or that, or you left this family in the church and you should have kicked them out, or you kicked them out and you should have left them in, or you should have done this or that some different way, and they sit around and judge and get their feelings hurt, or whatever, or, you know, so-and-so should not have been ordained a deacon. My husband should have been the next deacon. It's amazing what people can get all bent out of shape about. Little, tiny, teensy things among little human beings. Little ants crawling around on this earth. And here's the creator looking down from heaven, seeing how much we really love each other, how much we love God, testing us, guiding us, fashioning and molding us, and seeing if we're going to get our feelings hurt. Does he want us to become potential Satans? So when he gives us this tremendous power and glory, we could take away part of the whole universe like Lucifer did? No, he can't do that. He won't do that. He's testing us. He does not want us to turn aside from the church of God, which is doing God's work for anything, brethren, for anything. We've got to fully understand that. So looking diligently, he says lest anyone fall short and a root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. One person leaves, they take others with them, and they hurt the church. They discourage others. They hurt the work of God. The income falls off, and we can't reach so many more thousands or so many more hundreds of thousands or millions of people because here are people all fighting over coffee cop wars or who got to be the next deacon or who wasn't put out or who, who, who was put out, and, and they're judging and second-guessing the ministry and second-guessing Christ, the living head of the church. How could people do that? Well, you know, they do. They do, don't they? It's amazing. And yet here is the great God working with us, watching us. How loyal will we be? Can he trust us to be loyal to him and to Christ and to walk with Christ and to walk with God as part of his government, to be on his team, to interact and say yes, sir, and go do it if it comes from God? all through eternity, to never give up, to never get our feelings hurt, to never turn aside and rebel like Satan the devil did. No, we must not let anything turn us aside or any root of bitterness come in ever, lest there be any fornicator or profane person who just treats his birthright cheaply, cheaply, all the opportunities you have, how quickly can you turn aside? So many do. 
Think about it, brethren. Focus on the big picture. Don't let this little stuff turn you aside ever, ever, ever. Think, where is Christ working? Where is the full truth being preached? Where is Christ's government being more fully expressed? Not perfectly, but where is it being more fully expressed? Think about those three big things. Who is teaching the full truth? Who is doing the work of God to reach all nations with the gospel of the kingdom of God? And the Ezekiel warning to God's people who is feeding the flock with the full truth of God? And, of course, who is practicing God's government and teaching people so they can be part of that government? Who's doing that more fully? If you see where that is being done, and that is being done in the living church of God, and most of you know it, put your loyalty there. If we turn aside in some massive way, that's different. But frankly, I don't think we're going to do that. I've been following that way now for 58 years since I was baptized, about 58 and a half years ago. I think troubles will come elsewhere, not because of that. So understand, see the big picture. Don't let anyone turn you aside for your good, not my good, your good. It involves your eternal life. For he said, you know that afterward, when Esau, who was profane, gave up his birthright for something cheap, just a bowl of mush, bowl of beans, you know that afterward, when he had wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it very diligently with tears. Later he realized, wow, the work of God's going right on, in a sense, as we could think of it today. They're preaching the truth, doing the work, and I'm being passed by because I got my feelings hurt. And I turned aside. Well, if you turned aside, turn back again. Say, come back to the ministry. Come back to the work. Say, I'm sorry. I've learned a lesson. I want to be back on the team. I want to be part of the work that Christ is doing. And we'll forgive you. We'll help you every way we can. That's the way we are. That's the way we must be. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and blackness and darkness and tempest. Brethren, we haven't come to literal physical Mount Sinai over there. Uh, as I've seen it before, what they say was Mount Sinai, this big big mountain over there. We climbed it a 90-degree heat back in 1972. It was hot, but we climbed all the way up there. You haven't come to that big mountain. And the sound of a trumpet, you know, remember when God gave the Ten Commandments, He showed great power at that time. His spiritual trumpet was blasting. And the voice of words, God's voice boomed across the plains so that those who heard it begged that the word would not be spoken to them anymore. For they would not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with an arrow, God told them. They could not endure that. They just shook them and they were scared. But brethren, my brethren, God's people, you have come to the Mount Zion. Yes, you have come to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. Millions and countless millions of angels are aware of you, watching you. God is working with us directly and protecting us through angels. And you've come to the General Assembly and Church of the Firstborn. We are part of that church, the first of the, the church of those who are born, who are begotten of God, and will be part of the very firstborn in the resurrection. And those who are registered in heaven, our names are up there. Do you want your name to be taken out because you've turned aside, because you've got bitter, or because you aren't studying and praying and growing and you just drift away? God help you not ever to do that. You had your name now registered in heaven if you've been truly converted. You've come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. 
we're going to have that opportunity to know and interact with Christ and with the Father who we've been interacting with all the time by drinking into this word daily, by praying to God all through the day, perhaps dozens of times as we walk with God. And then we'll interact with these people, the spirits of just men made perfect. We'll interact with them throughout all eternity. And, of course, we have that opportunity. And then we're brought to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, We'll know him in a personal way beyond what we can do now. And the blood of the sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape, who refused him who spoke on earth? And the Israelites turned right away from God at that time. Much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. God is speaking from heaven through me now. And he's speaking through this book, brethren. He's helping you to know you must not give up. You must not ever turn aside. Your spiritual vision must always be there to help you see the big picture and to walk with God, talk with God, commune with God, and commune with Christ so that you may be glorified when that last trumpet sounds and that you may join with God and with Christ and with the spirits of just men made perfect and the very kingdom of God, the very personal family of God, where you're part of the family, the creator family, interacting with, loving, helping, serving, creating, accomplishing forever. That's why you were born. Don't ever turn your life. Don't ever turn your sight away. Don't ever lose that vision, my brethren. Don't do it. Pray for each other. Keep it up. Take care as you go home. Drive safely. Ask God to protect each one and to watch over us and bless us and keep us and bring us back to, to this feast again and bring us into his everlasting kingdom. That must be our goal. That must be our vision. Thank you, brethren. Pray for one another.